somebody just recently said, here are the things that make a good entrepreneur. And it was all assertiveness and confidence and blah, 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 right? These big words that we all think of. And I said, huh, well, how about humbleness, right? Like, I think it's so important to be humble and to be curious and to know that you don't know everything and to ask good questions and to be empathic so that you have an amazing team and they love working for you and they don't fear you when you walk through the factory like Elon Musk. Everybody fears him. And that might be a way that works for him and his company, but perhaps it doesn't work for other companies. And maybe that's not the only way of showing leadership. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Our guest this week is Anne Coquette, Sarah entrepreneur and author of Dare to Launch, mini MBA for first-time entrepreneurs. Anne's best-selling business book is an offshoot of the Guild Academy, a virtual eight-week accelerator for early-stage startups. The course covers everything from ideation to prototyping to branding, marketing, and pitching, all of which Anne has extensive experience in, having mentored hundreds of startups over the years. Visualizing the future is an essential component to our guests on Before It Happened. Anne guides would-be founders to find their North Star by defining a mission statement and core values. For Anne, that sense of purpose comes from mentoring startup founders around the world. The more variety, the better. Anne grew up with very traditional values, where order and obedience were prized over individuality. But as we all know, the flip side of order is rebellion. We begin our interview with a glimpse into the conditions that compelled Anne to move away from her home country of Germany and to find her North Star on the other side of the world. I grew up in Germany in a town called Ostfildern, which is close to Stuttgart, which is in the southwest of Germany. The area is best known for cars and Mercedes and Porsche are there. So everybody works for one of these car manufacturers in one way or another. And did your parents work for those automotive companies? No, not at all. They were both teachers and my mom decided to be a full-time mom and my dad was a teacher and both of my sisters are also teachers. So I come from a family of teachers and took a very different route. So what are the lessons taught in your family in terms of the family values and things that your parents distilled in you and your siblings? Mostly, it was about valuing education. And there was a lot of Christian values there as well for my family. I myself, I'm not Christian, but it was definitely this idea of education is everything and the academic education is everything. There was a high standard for being on time and morale and, and, you know, this very German type of understanding of what's right and what's wrong. So in my hometown, everybody has this duty of cleaning the sidewalk, right? 
the, the little sign who has to clean the sidewalk would move from house to house. And if it was on your door, you better have that sidewalk clean at 7 a.m. in the morning, no matter if it was ice or snow or leaves or whatever. <laughs> and so that's really kind of the essence of the area in Germany where I grew up. And for me, it felt a little bit restricting because sometimes I wouldn't want to get up at 7 a.m. and clean the sidewalk or I would want to break the rules. And, and so for me, it was really important at some point to escape and get out of Germany and as far away as possible to discover other values and also other ways of life, if you will. So one of the things that I know about Germany and the culture is precision, right? And math is an exact science. So I was personally paranoid by math because it was so exact and I couldn't come up with a creative answer because it was an exact science, right? <laughs> the streets, the sweeping uh, that you described, the tidiness of the community, was that from a cultural aspect that that was required or was it because the area that you lived in was the automotive spectrum of the world and, and it was just, was it dictated by that or was it a cultural thing? I think it's both. It's cultural for Germany and perhaps that part of Europe, but it's also specifically amplified in the area where I grew up, which is called Swabia. So in that area, everything is about cleanliness and tidying up and precision, as you say. And I think it's really important when you build high-performance cars where every little nut and bolt has to fit and fit perfectly and work perfectly in this big system of things that you have that ability to really get down to the detail and love that precision. But some people really strive and thrive at that, but I'm not that person. Uh, some people say I'm detail-oriented, and I can be because I learned that I had to be, but my natural MO is to do quick and dirty first, right? And, <laughs> and then go deeper and refine. But I wouldn't be the person who goes in and starts with the, the tiny nuts and bolts. How did you know, life in Germany inspire you to just look at things differently? You said wanting the need to, to leave and study. What was the drive? Yeah, the drive to leave really came with curiosity. I was so curious about the world. I was so curious about other ways of life. And I had glimpses of that. And I think television is, and movies are really a big part of that, where you see other cultures, where you see other ways of life. And I wanted to experience that. And I knew that I wasn't perfectly at home in Germany. And it wasn't where my personality could really be what I wanted it to be because there was always this little damper on it. And so I knew I had to explore and I didn't know where I had to go. So I just did this round the world trip. That's how I started to explore. And I went to Asia and to Australia and to the United States and then came back to Europe and tried to work in a few different countries in Europe as well. And my job there brought me also to Malaysia and to the UK and to Hungary and very different cultures. And it was like being in a candy store for me. <laughs> I was able to explore all these things and these cultures. And I lived in England for a while, but nothing really fit until I met my husband and moved to San Francisco. And that was the moment where I felt like, oh my God, this is exactly where I feel at home. And this is exactly where I can flourish. So you go to college, you study business. What was your first job? 
Oh, my first job was being a shopping assistant for an older woman. And I built a little business around that and started going shopping for people in the neighborhood and also walked their dogs. And then I realized they needed more than that. They needed also somebody to talk to and to color their eggs at Easter because they didn't have family around. So that was me for a while. And that financed my entire university time and then also my round the world trip after university. So you get out of college and then what was your next destination? What was your job and where was that? Yeah, so out of university, I went on the round of world trip and I spent quite a bit of time in Australia and I worked a bunch of jobs there. I was a park ranger in Kagadu National Park and I also implemented Oracle for a fastener company in Melbourne and I worked in the purchasing department of a meat factory. So it was really across the board. And it was my time to just explore and see and have that freedom. In Germany, I would have not had that freedom to do all these jobs just from a cultural perspective. And then I came back and then I started management consulting in Switzerland, which you couldn't think of anything more different than car detailing in Australia to management consulting in, in Switzerland. I did that for a few years and then uh, tried my own business, which didn't go well at all. It was an art business and I was so cocky. I thought with that same attitude that you go in to see customers at the management consulting firm, I could do that business as well. And that didn't work out at all. And then I started my own consulting firm in England for a year and did a big project, Orange and T-Mobile merged. And then ultimately, 10 years ago, then I came to the United States without any plan. It was really just a trip to see a good friend. It was her wedding. I was the maid of honor. And so on that trip, I met my husband and that catapulted me into Silicon Valley in San Francisco. So your husband's from Silicon Valley or San Francisco area? Well, he's actually from Belgium and he came here in the 90s and he lived in Florida and then moved to California. So we met in Los Angeles and then both moved up to San Francisco. So when did you realize that you had this entrepreneurial skill set? Because it sounds like early on the business that you created, you know, you were in college and then you had a little couple of stints creating your own business. When you came to the Silicon Valley, San Francisco Bay Area, is that when it really switched on? Yes, I would say that was definitely a catalytic event. And at the time, neither I or my husband had a job, right? We just got married. We were in San Francisco, which happened to be one of the most expensive towns. And we didn't have a job. And my husband had this idea of creating little corner protectors for the iPhone. I don't even know which version back then. And so a lot of friends had told him that's a great idea. You should create a product, put it on Kickstarter and do it. So we looked at it together and we said, well, while I wait for my work permit, why don't we give it a shot? And so this is kind of when we started our entrepreneurial journey. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I had never created a physical product, packaging, manufacturing, injection molding, China imports, suppliers, etc. It was just nuts. And it was really fun because I had to figure all this out, right? And that, I think, is goes back to the math and the puzzles. It was a puzzle and you, there was a way to solve it. And in this instance, you couldn't just sit there and think and think and think and then maybe you find the solution, but you had to talk to people. You had to find the right folks to connect you to the right supplier and to find the right salesperson and to even understand what you didn't know. And that was so fun for me, being totally new in the city, 
I literally knew one person that was my husband and he had one couple there that he knew and that was all. We knew three people and that's how we started. And the beauty of Silicon Valley or San Francisco and the South Bay and all the great areas is that it's a very welcoming community and there's so many opportunities to connect. So you don't have to have the pass to the Rotary Club or you know, you don't have to have that entry ticket. You can just show up and it's all open. Most of it is. And then slowly, because everybody is kind of this newcomer, slowly you get invited and you work your way into this network. And then I literally went to any meetup that I could find. And it was all the way from data science and visualization meetups at Stanford for some talk to, oh, let's go to this Indian restaurant in Palo Alto where we meet all these electric vehicle enthusiasts. And somebody was there with this record-winning electric car and he happened to to be half German and, and you just connect. And as you say, it's very male-dominated. And at some point I realized, gosh, like, where do I fit in here, right? I feel a little bit like the odd man or woman out. And that's sort of the first step into creating a network of my own because I figured I'll find a network here that fits me. But then after a while, I realized, hmm, maybe that network doesn't exist. And that's more like the women network and the business-minded folks that come together and and celebrate each other and also have a little bit of champagne and cupcakes and all that. And I couldn't find that anywhere. And so a few years, actually one year in, I started a ladies club because I wanted to talk to more female entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial-minded women to see if we could build community together and have fun together. As Anne set out to build a network, she connected with two women who would become her mentors as she built her business. Denise Brousseau, founder of Watermark, a network for C-suite level professional women, and Andy Geist, managing partner of Healthtech Capital, a powerful public health expert and investor who coined the term Healthtech. Both of these elder stateswomen in entrepreneurship helped Anne establish a new identity as a leader in the Silicon Valley startup scene and ultimately the world. Anne de Geese from Health Tech Capital. She's an incredible woman. She's also from Belgium, so she came in. She's an immigrant. And she started an angel group investing in health tech at a time when health tech was not even a thing yet. And she coined the term health tech. So when I joined Genentech in my full-time role, so I was moonlighting the bezel uh, iPhone case business, and I was also full-time with Genentech. I moved into their innovation department pretty quickly because I noticed that there was overlap between what I was doing with the iPhone business and perhaps at Genentech. So I wanted to bring these worlds together. So I moved into the innovation department there. And then very quickly, I was the one who was sent to all these pitch competitions and to the accelerators. And I had to choose which accelerators we should partner with and which angel groups we should partner with to bring really innovative digital health ideas and companies to Genentech. And we had this amazing initiative about preventing cervical cancer. And so we ran a global startup competition to bring innovative ideas to Genentech. And that gave me an incredible network and also opportunity to be there and speak on behalf of a really large company. And so Anne de she met me at one of the angel meetings. She brought me in and I was the corporate partner, right? I had no, no idea about 
the American healthcare system whatsoever. And so she just took me under her wing and said, okay, here, here's what you need to know. And here's <laughs> what you need to learn so that you can be a good partner to me. So those kinds of people were just instrumental in helping me navigate the system and also understanding the venture capital world and the world of accelerators and incubators and universities and how it all works together. Were you an entrepreneur within the women's group only, or were you actually teaching at this point? When did you actually start expanding outside the women's group as an entrepreneur? So I first started my own tech company. It was a matchmaking platform focused on women in business. And that then became more and more of a founder-funder matchmaking platform. And the technology part became less and less important because people had all these questions and we did all these events to promote the technology solution. And then we realized events are actually what people want. And now an event is very short-lived. So in 2018, I decided, you know what, we should try to do more educational content and somehow bottle the secret sauce of Silicon Valley and the amazing people here and, and bring that to other people all around the world. And so in 2020, in January, we launched our academy program. And that's an eight-week program where we teach entrepreneurship in a very basic way where, you know, if you don't know what a CAC is or you don't know what a pitch deck consists of or you don't know if your business is venture fundable or if it's something you can get a bank loan for or you don't know what an MVP is, that is the program for you. And, and that program we launched in 2020, super exciting, January, we got all these people and mostly women in that program. And then the pandemic hit. So you're kind of like four months ahead of the pandemic curve where everybody moved everything virtual. And we had people from Azerbaijan join. We have Guild Academy alumni from El Salvador, from Peru, from all over the world. And that was so beautiful because all of a sudden Silicon Valley, which is so insular, became much more accessible to all these people from all over the world and the Midwest as well, right? And so we took the really the expertise of all these incredible people that I had the pleasure and the honor of meeting during these years and inviting to our events to then bring into this program and do video modules and take their expertise and put it into templates and very practical types of content that people can use to then start their own businesses. So let's talk about Dare to Launch. And one of the things I loved about the book is you talk about finding your North Star. How did you find your North Star? What part of the discovery process did you say, ah, this is my North Star, and now I'm going to write a book, and then I'm going to share my wisdom to others so they actually don't have to go through all the process that you did and make it literally keep it short and tidy for success. What went through your process of like, okay, this is my North Star? Yeah, it took me a really long time to really find that. I thought I had to be a VP in a corporation somewhere to find my North Star. And when I was in corporate America at Genentech and looked at that letter and looked at the value system, 
at some point I realized my North Star is really driven by curiosity and by trying different things and by getting involved in different topics and by trying to really understand other people and, and their issues and then being a part of the solution for whatever they want to solve. And that you can have that role in a corporation because you just work on one problem usually. And I, I think there's corporations where you have more opportunity. But for me, I just absolutely love to jump into different businesses, into different ideas. In the current academy, we have a HVAC person. They're doing a sustainability software so you can figure out what kind of HVAC system you need for your house. In the last academy, we had a person who is solving the opioid crisis in Montana. We have a person who is trying to get more farmers in the United States plant sugar beets for various different reasons. And then we have people who built SaaS platforms for flower shops in Paris. And for me, that's the candy shop. I can get into each one of these, not on that detail level, but on that high level, and I can help them solve their math problems in their businesses. And sometimes it's simple as the marketing language needs to be different, or the tech platform is completely wrong, or they're just not thinking about the business in the right way. Sometimes it's the mindset, sometimes it's getting in front of the right customers or making an introduction to somebody and that really is my North Star. And that's why I wrote the book, because I realized I cannot multiply Anne. I only have so many hours in the day, and I can only do so many coaching and advisory sessions. And I also have a few clients that have me on retainer to help them build pitch decks and find the right investors for their A round. And I can only do that to a certain that's limited, right? It's not scalable. And in the world of startups and scalability, I thought, how can I make this more accessible and scalable for other people? And that's why I wrote the book, because the book is available for $3 on an ebook or it's $15 for paper copy. And then anybody can afford that. And I think there's a lot of information in that book that can help hundreds and thousands of people start their own thing and solve some of these math problems that I had to solve the hard way. What is the future of entrepreneurship in terms of people, the younger generations, the Zoomers and millennials, and really going, you know what? The glass ceiling, it doesn't exist anymore for me. You know, I keep thinking about, is the glass ceiling still exists or we just have more options to different floors? In order to create a future without a glass ceiling in entrepreneurship, we have to push on many fronts. It can't just be education. I think the book and what, what I do is one little piece of that. But we have to bring more women into the investment world. We have to bring more women into the VC world. More partners at VC firms have to be women because we know data shows us that women invest typically more in women. I wasn't sure if that was true, but I recently saw a study and it's true. And it's clear because it's the network again, right? Like if you have the network and the trust and the friends, the likelihood of you writing a check to that person is just much, much higher than if you don't know each other. So that's why representation matters so much. So I think that's really, really key. But I also think we need more policies. We need policy changes so that it's easier to start a fund, for instance, and I'm an advisor to the How Women Invest Fund, who is working on that. They're trying to get also more women to angel invest. It takes as little as $1,000 to start investing in that high-risk asset class of startups. We have to flex these muscles. We have to teach women 
how to build wealth and not just have the cash under the mattress. And we have to also change how we define leadership. Somebody just recently said, here are the things that make a good entrepreneur. And it was all assertiveness and confidence and blah, 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 right? These big words that we all think of. And I said, huh, well, how about humbleness? I think it's so important to be humble and to be curious and to know that you don't know everything and to ask good questions and to be empathic so that you have an amazing team and they love working for you. And they don't fear you when you walk through the factory like Elon Musk. Everybody fears him. And that might be a way that works for him and his company, but perhaps it doesn't work for other companies. And maybe that's not the only way of showing leadership. So I think we have to work on that. And if you got me started there, I think this goes into changing the way how we portray women in in movies and in an advertisement. This goes to education for little children and children books. There's so much bias in those, right? And we have to show more female entrepreneurs and highlight those, which is what I do in the book, because most of the business books tell stories of men. 80% of the protagonists in these nonfiction business books are men. I'm not Mark Andreessen or Ben Horowitz. I have not had that experience. And if I read their book, I don't see myself. In it. So we need more of that. We need more in literature. I think we need more female authors also in the nonfiction space. Most of the bestsellers in entrepreneurship are written by men. And again, it's not the same perspective. So when we have the money through the investors, when we have the education through schools, but also programs like the Guild Academy and Dare to Launch, the book, when we have a little bit of a culture change and policies that try to move the industry in the right way, then I think we look at a future of entrepreneurship that's really inclusive and involves all the players that should be involved to represent our society. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like Lisa Lindahl, who designed the world's first sports bra out of jack straps in the 1970s, kicking off what would become a $100 billion industry. My living room turned into the warehouse and my dining room turned into the office. And I thought it would be a nice little mail order business on the side. Because again, getting work was a conundrum for me. Unemployment and underemployment are the biggest issues for people with epilepsy. So for me, doing the jog bra, you know, I thought, nice little mail order business on the side while I go to school. But what happened is that we started getting so many orders right away, not just from individuals, but from all these stores that it just took off. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings every time I talked to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened.
So I think one of the things that is so important in what you were just describing is the inclusion in the equity, right? And that's becoming more apparent. I'm fortunate to work with a company that has 100% women besides the co-founder and the CEO of the company. The board is all women. And that's rare, right? Just getting 50% is still rare. You've taken your book and your philosophy and your teachings on the road. Where have you actually taken your wisdom and have you taken it back to Germany and spread the seeds there as well? Yes. So I am a mentor for the German-American Accelerator. So they bring German companies here over the pond to launch in the United States. I've been in that role for about two or three years, and I have helped many, many different companies to launch here. The latest one is a car rental, a Karen rental company. It's really amazing how much innovation there is in Germany. It's just really not very well known. It's just one of the big differences in the United States where people market their solutions before they're real. In Germany, they're real, and then they start to market them. And they already have customers like Porsche and Mercedes. So yes, from that perspective, I have really engaged with the German network. And my book now is also used at one of the universities in Germany to teach the entrepreneurship track of the MBA class in Weingarten, for instance. That's a testament. Yeah, I'm very happy to see that. Canada also reached out to use the book and the program to help entrepreneurs get the visa in Canada. Uh, so that's in the making. We'll see if that comes through. And then I do a lot of work with the German Chamber of Commerce now, as well as an advisor, where we discuss the cultural differences and the issues between the United States and Germany and what can be done to help connect Germany a little bit more to Silicon Valley and the United States. So... What markets excite you the most? I'm deeply entrenched in many emerging markets, and I was working with autonomous cars way before Google had autonomous cars and cybersecurity and just so many different markets. But what markets, because you work in an array of specialty markets, what markets excite you the most? I'm, I'm really looking into Web3 right now. I'm trying to understand the limitations and the possibilities of that space. I think it's a very interesting thought to decentralize the internet and also decision-making. Coming from Germany, it's actually a very Sherman thought when you think about it, because it's a very democratic, almost socialist country. And the United States is not like that at all. It's always like the winner takes it all, and it's a very capitalist system where there's one person deciding. And now all of a the sudden, there's this move into Web3 where everybody wants to decentralize decisions and everybody gets a piece of the pie. And if you're a great Instagrammer, you should have a piece of Instagram, right? Because your content actually contributes to the success of Instagram. So why not kind of give that person a piece? So I think there's some really interesting shifts in thinking there. I think there's a lot of scammers out there and a lot of crap happening, which is always the case when you have a Wild West of a new industry emerging. And I'm also thinking about it from my farm perspective. I bought a blueberry farm. We have tons of blueberries. It's very hard as a small farmer in the United States to get rid of your crops. So you can go to the farmer's market, but we have way too much crop for that. But you can't go to the big distributors like Driscoll because they never want to work with a farm that's nine acres. And so I think perhaps there's a Web3 business in here and perhaps we can create a collective where multiple people can own this farm and the decision-making of what we do with the berries and then it could be a partial ownership of the berries and then people get it in form of blueberry wine or jam. 
can you take the blueberries into the metaverse and actually make it more tangible and branding them? Yeah, exactly. What are your thoughts of the metaverse? And do you think it's actually beneficial for entrepreneurs like you and your blueberries or other entrepreneurial projects that you might be influencing? So that's what I'm trying to figure out right now. I don't know how soon, but I would love to launch even an academy in the metaverse, maybe in Upland or Decentraland, or those kinds of metaverses to educate folks and bring our education there. But I'm also a true believer in having done it myself first before teaching others. And that's not true for a lot of professors and teachers. For me, I really want to understand it and have gone through it myself before then trying to to teach others. So I want to go to the blueberry farm. What was your inspiration to leave the Silicon Valley and buy a blueberry farm, which is in up in the Pacific Northwest. Tell us about that journey and how that's now become not just a destination, but a lifestyle and the new entrepreneurial ship that's going on. Yeah, so it was March, 2020. <laughs> and all of a sudden the life that I knew shut down. No more events, no more conferences, no more in-person networking, which is what I was all about. And I have to say, after 10 years, it had also gotten a little stale for me. And I wanted a change. The pandemic really catalyzed that change for me. And we looked at our life in our apartment in San Francisco and the homeless problem there and everything shutting down. And we said, okay, this is, this is a good time for us to make a change. So we sold our place. We exchanged our 1977 VW for a sprinter van. And for about four, six months, we just drove through the US, saw a ton of nature, and then spent the winter in Mexico while working. And then ultimately, we came back to Hood River, which has a special place in my husband's heart. There's some aerospace industry here, which brought him here initially. And then there's also, it's just an outdoor mecca for kite surfing and mountain biking, and fishing. Etc. And so we came here and we decided we wanted to settle here for a while. And I saw this blueberry farm and I I had these visions of what it could be and potentially could also be used to build community and bring people here and have animals and have space and everything is green around us. I look at mountain ranges right now and two volcanoes and it's just expansive and beautiful and serene which is very different to San Francisco. And San Francisco is amazing for other reasons. And so for us, it was the right time in our lives to move here. And we moved here and I found out I was pregnant. So it was a double reason for us to be in a place where I can just walk to the daycare here. And the daycare is next to an orchard and there's a ton of parents around and a lot of innovative people here as well. My neighbor, in fact, is the... CEO of Kestrel Verifiers, which is a startup in the ESG financial data space. And I work with her now. So it's an amazing area. I love the fact we're on a farm and it's a new adventure. Will we be here forever? I don't know. And I'm also always able to go back to San Francisco. It's a one hour drive to the airport. It's an easy airport. I come back to San Francisco. I launched my book there. I'll be there for the retreat with the How Women Invest disruption committee there. Very excited to go. And so, so yes, we're still connected. We're still connected to the hubs. 
What has motherhood taught you about yourself and how do you apply that back into your wisdom as an entrepreneur? Oh, I think Donna, you have to ask me that in a year or so. <laughs> it's uh, it's been crazy. I'll ask you when they're when your child's eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> so Lewis is six months now, and it's been a very wild ride for me. Uh, I'm in my end thirties, so my whole life I have just focused on myself and my career and what I wanted to do, and now all of a sudden, it's it's about Lewis, and I had not expected that at all. And I think for all the mothers out there and the mothers-to-be, we have to tell them that this is a major life transition and you have to not just research strollers and how to not kill your baby, but also how do you keep sane in that transition and what will you do for yourself and what kind of self-care will you perform during that time. So my new identity is I'm a mother and I'm an entrepreneur and I love it. And I want to bring it together as much as possible. As I was saying, the pandemic has actually been great for parenting because so many parents are actually more hands-on and they were forced to be more hands-on. The last question I have for you is really the future of entrepreneurship and the younger generation, the Zoomers who are very values-driven and much more like the boomers in the sense of peace, love, and understanding. And they're coming up in the ranks and are they coming to your sessions? And what's your message to that generation when it comes to entrepreneurship? In our Guild Academy cohorts, we have people who work on menopause and they might be in their 50s, as well as folks who create wedding planner marketplaces out of Texas and they just came out of college. And my message is you got to connect and learn from each other. And sometimes there's a lot of entitlement in that generation where people feel they're entitled to certain things. And I think we should just learn from each other. And you know, somebody who's 50 years old and has been around the block a few times, that entrepreneur comes with such an amazing experience we should learn from each other and we sh shouldn't be just insular in our circles and really network broadly and be curious and create something that feels like it's it's aligned with your values. Don't do something that seems to be money for you. If you're value-driven, then create a value-driven company and then connect it with money. The company I help right now, they do ESG data for muni bonds, super value-driven, and it's also a ton of money in that business. So that's what I hope to teach in the academy, that it's not either or. You don't have to create a nonprofit organization in order to create good in the world. You can connect your values and creating something new with a relatively capitalist system. Yeah, well, I think the Academy of Life, I think, <laughs> I like what you said earlier about being humble. I think one of the things that in all the entrepreneurs that I work with, humble is very important. Also, the grit, because sometimes I'm just so impressed you have a blueberry farm. That's not easy to harvest blueberries. I think that's one of the things that entrepreneurship does to you is you stand back and you look at things. You have to look at things with a different lens. So, now that you've gone around the world and you've had several different milestones, whether it be coming to Silicon Valley and and now your blueberry farm, you look at the next 10 years. I mean, where do you think you're sprinting off to? Well, we're here for now, for sure. But I'll always be back in San Francisco once a month or so. And I hope to bring the economy to more cities as well. So that will involve some travel and that will 
involve me creating new programs and perhaps there's going to be a summer camp or even a summit at some point here at the farm. So that's what I see for the future. And I think we are all much more mobile now through the pandemic and in the real sense of the word, but also with figuring things out. We got better in solving puzzles, I believe, because we had to. And because of that, I hope there's going to be more innovation and more ideas and more awesome thoughts that people have and now have the ability to really pursue and see if there's something there. And I really hope that my book and our programs are going to help those people to fulfill that potential. Did we hear someone say summer entrepreneurship camp at the blueberry farm with Anne? Sign me up. We love the idea of an immersive, wholesome environment where founders support each other in building values-driven businesses. And we can't wait to see what's next in Anne's journey. Check the show notes for links to Anne's social channels for more information. Thank you for listening. Follow Before Happen on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe rate and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. Before It Happened.